Your listenership is so important to us. We really do hope you're enjoying the show. If you're able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So is following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your support. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew. I'm here to calm your mind and help you relax into a peaceful night's sleep. I'm going to do that by reading you a story. Tonight, I'll be reading Chapter 21 of The Phantom of the Opera by Gaston Leroux. In the last chapter, Raoul and the Persian made their way through the underground chambers. Tonight's story will be one of hidden doors, secrets of the past, and dangerous situations. First, let's make sure we're as comfortable as we can be and ready to fall asleep. If you haven't already, find yourself a nice place to get cosy. That might be in a chair, or in your bed, or elsewhere. And as you rest your body in whatever way feels most relaxed, sitting up, laying down, eyes open or eyes closed. Just imagine all of the weight of the day drifting away from you with every deep breath in and out. We all fall asleep in our own time and in our own way. So while you're on your own path to sleep, all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice. And so, let your eyes fall heavy, and your breath soften, as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 21 Interesting and Instructive Vicissitudes of a Persian in the Cellars of the Opera The Persian lit his lamp again and flung its rays down two enormous corridors that crossed each other at right angles. We must be, he said, in the part used more particularly for the waterworks. I see no fire coming from the furnaces. He went in front of Raoul, seeking his road, stopping abruptly when he was afraid of meeting some watermen. Then they had to protect themselves against the glow of a sort of underground forge, which the men were extinguishing, and at which Raoul recognized the demons Christine had seen at the time of her first captivity. In this way, they gradually arrived beneath the huge cellars below the stage. They must at this time have been at the very bottom of the tub, and at an extremely great depth, when we remember that the earth was dug out at fifty feet below the water that lay under the whole of that part of Paris. The Persian touched a partition wall and said, If I am not mistaken, this is a wall that might easily belong to the house on the lake. He was striking a partition wall of the tub, 
and perhaps it would be as well for the reader to know how the bottom and the partition walls of the tub were built. In order to prevent the water surrounding the building operations from remaining in immediate contact with the walls supporting the whole of the theatrical machinery, the architect was obliged to build a double case in every direction. The work of constructing this double case took a whole year. It was the wall of the first inner case that the Persian struck when speaking to Raoul of the house on the lake. To anyone understanding the architecture of the edifice, the Persian's action would seem to indicate that Eric's mysterious house had been built in the double case, formed of a thick wall constructed as an embankment or dam, then of a brick wall, a tremendous layer of cement and another wall, several yards in thickness. At the Persian's words, Raoul flung himself against the wall and listened eagerly. But he heard nothing, nothing, except distant steps sounding on the floor of the upper portions of the theatre. The Persian darkened his lantern again. Look out he said. Keep your hand up, and silence, for we shall try another way of getting in. And he led him to the little staircase by which they had come down lately. They went up, stopped at each step, peering into the darkness and the silence, till they came to the third cellar. Here the Persian motioned to Raoul to go on his knees, and, in this way, crawling on both knees and one hand, for the other hand was held in the position indicated, they reached the end of the wall. Against this wall stood a large, discarded scene from Roy de Lahore. Close to this scene was a set piece. Between the scene and the set piece, there was just room for a body, for a body which one day was found hanging there, the body of Joseph Bouquet. The Persian, still kneeling, stopped and listened. For a moment, he seemed to hesitate and looked at Raoul, then he turned his eyes upwards towards the second cellar which sent down the faint glimmer of a lantern through a cranny between two boards. This glimmer seemed to trouble the Persian. At last, he tossed his head and made his mind to act. He slipped between the set piece and the scene from the Roy de Lahore, with Raoul close upon his heels. With his free hand, the Persian felt the wall. Raoul saw him bear heavily upon the wall, just as he had pressed against the wall in Christine's dressing room. Then a stone gave way, leaving a hole in the wall. This time, the Persian took his pistol from his pocket and made a sign to Raoul to do as he did. He cocked the pistol. And, resolutely, still on his knees, he wiggled through the hole in the wall. Raoul, who had wished to pass first, had to be content to follow him. The hole was very narrow. The Persian stopped almost at once. Raoul heard him feeling the stones around him. Then the Persian took out his dark lantern again stooped forward, examined something beneath him, and immediately extinguished his lantern. Raoul heard him say, in a whisper, We shall have to drop a few yards without making a noise. Take off your boots. The Persian handed his own shoes to Raoul. Put them outside the wall, he said. 
We shall find them there when we leave. He crawled a little farther on his knees, then turned right around and said, I am going to hang by my hands from the edge of the stone and let myself drop into his house. You must do exactly the same. Do not be afraid. I will catch you in my arms. Raoul soon heard a dull sound, evidently produced by the fall of the Persian, and then dropped down. He felt himself clasped in the Persian's arms. Hush, said the Persian, and they stood motionless, listening. The darkness was thick around them, the silence heavy and terrible. Then the Persian began to make play with the dark lantern again, turning the rays over their heads, looking for the hole through which they had come, and failing to find it. Oh, he said, the stone has closed on itself, and the light of the lantern swept down the wall and over the floor. The Persian stooped and picked up something, a sort of cord, which he examined for a second and flung away with horror. The Punjab lasso, he muttered. What is it? asked Raoul. The Persian shivered. It might very well be the rope by which the man was hanged and which was looked for so long. And suddenly, Seized with fresh anxiety, he moved the light red disc of his lantern over the wall. In this way, he lit up a curious thing, the trunk of a tree, which seemed still quite alive with its leaves, and the branches of that tree ran up the wall and disappeared in the ceiling. Because of the smallness of the luminous disc, it was difficult at first to make out the appearance of things. They saw a corner of branch, and a leaf, and another leaf, and, next to it, nothing at all. Nothing but the ray of light that seemed to reflect it. Raoul passed his hand over nothing, over that reflection. Hello, he said. The wall is a looking glass. Yes, a looking glass, said the Persian in a tone of deep emotion. And, passing the hand that held the pistol over his moist forehead, he added, We have dropped into the torture chamber. What the Persian knew of this torture chamber and what there befell him and his companion shall be told in his own words, as set down in a manuscript which he left behind him, and which I copy now verbatim. The Persian's Narrative It was the first time that I entered the house on the lake. I had often begged the trapdoor lover as we used to call Eric in my country, to open its mysterious doors to me. He always refused. I made very many attempts, but in vain, to obtain admittance. Watch him as I might, after I first learned that he had taken up his permanent abode at the opera. The darkness was always too thick to enable me to see how he worked the door in the wall on the lake. One day, when I thought myself alone, I stepped into the boat and rowed towards that part of the wall through which I had seen Eric disappear. It was then that I came in contact with the siren who guarded the approach and whose charm was very nearly fatal to me. I had no sooner put off from the bank than the silence amid which I floated on the water was disturbed by a sort of whispered singing that hovered all around me. 
It was half breath, half music. It rose softly from the waters of the lake, and I was surrounded by it through I knew not what artifice. It followed me, moved with me, and was so soft that it did not alarm me. On the contrary, in my longing to approach the source of that sweet and enticing harmony, I leaned out of my little boat over the water, for there was no doubt in my mind that the singing came from the water itself. By this time, I was alone in the boat in the middle of the lake. The voice, for it was now distinctly a voice, was beside me on the water. I leaned over, leaned still farther. The lake was perfectly calm, and a moonbeam that passed through the air hole in the Rue Scribe showed me absolutely nothing on its surface, which was smooth and black as ink. I shook my ears to get rid of a possible humming, but I soon had to accept the fact that there was no humming in the ears so harmonious as the singing whisper that followed and now attracted me. Had I been inclined to superstition, I should have certainly thought that I had to do with some siren whose business it was to confound the traveller who should venture on the waters of the house on the lake. Fortunately, I came from a country where we are too fond of fantastic things not to know them through and through, and I had no doubt but I was face to face with some new invention of Eric's. But this invention was so perfect that, as I leaned out of the boat, I was impelled less by a desire to discover its trick than to enjoy its charm. And I leaned out, leaned out until I almost overturned the boat. Suddenly, two monstrous arms issued from the bosom of the waters and seized me by the neck, dragging me down to the depths with irresistible force. I should certainly have been lost if I had not had time to give a cry by which Eric knew me, for it was he, and instead of drowning me, as was certainly his first intention, he swam with me and laid me gently on the bank. How imprudent you are, he said, as he stood before me, dripping with water. Why try to enter my house? I never invited you. I don't want you there, nor anybody. Did you save my life only to make it unbearable to me? However great the service you rendered him, Eric may end by forgetting it, and you know that nothing can restrain Eric, not even Eric himself. He spoke, but I had now no other wish than to know what I already called the trick of the siren. He satisfied my curiosity, for Eric, who is a real monster, I have seen him at work in Persia, alas, is also, in certain respects, a regular child, vain and conceited, and there is nothing he loves so much after astonishing people as to prove all the really miraculous ingenuity of his mind. He laughed and showed me a long read. It's the silliest trick you ever saw, he said, but it's very useful for breathing and singing in the water. I learned it from the Tonkin pirates who are able to remain for hours in the beds of rivers. I spoke to him severely. It's a trick that nearly killed me, I said, and it may have been fatal to others. You know what you promised me, Eric, 
no more murders. Have I really committed murders? He asked, putting on his most amiable air. Wretched man, I cried. Have you forgotten the rosy hours of Mazaderan? Yes, he replied in a sadder tone. I prefer to forget them. I used to make the little sultana laugh, though. All that belongs to the past, I declared. But there is the present, and you are responsible to me for the present, because if I had wished, there would have been none at all for you. Remember that, Eric. I saved your life and I took advantage of the turn in conversation to speak to him of something that had long been on my mind. Eric, I asked. Eric, swear that... What? he retorted. You know I never keep my oaths. Oaths are made to catch gulls with. Tell me. You can tell me at any rate. Well, well, the chandelier, the chandelier, Eric. What about the chandelier? You know what I mean. Oh, he sniggered. I don't mind telling you about the chandelier. It wasn't I. The chandelier was very old and worn. When Eric laughed, He was more terrible than ever. He jumped into the boat, chuckling so horribly that I could not help trembling. Very old and worn, my dear Daroga. Very old and worn, the chandelier. It fell of itself. It came down with a smash. And now, Daroga, take my advice and go dry yourself, or you'll catch a cold in the head, and never get into my boat again, and whatever you do, don't try to enter my house, I'm not always there, Daroga, and I should be sorry to have to dedicate my requiem mass to you. So saying, swinging to and fro, like a monkey, and still chuckling, he pushed off and soon disappeared into the darkness of the lake. From that day, I gave up all thought of penetrating into his house by the lake. That entrance was obviously too well guarded, especially since he had learned that I knew about it but I felt that there must be another entrance, for I had often seen Eric disappear in the third cellar when I was watching him, though I could not imagine how. Ever since I had discovered Eric installed in the opera, I lived in a perpetual terror of his horrible fancies, not in so far as I was concerned but I dreaded everything for others. And whenever some accident, some fatal event happened, I always thought to myself, I should not be surprised if that were Eric, even as others used to say, it's the ghost. How often have I not heard people utter that phrase with a smile, poor devils, If they had known that the ghost existed in the flesh, I swear they would not have laughed. Although Eric announced to me very solemnly that he had changed and that he had become the most virtuous of men since he was loved for himself, a sentence that, at first, perplexed me most terribly. I could not help shuddering when I thought of the monster. His horrible, unparalleled and repulsive ugliness 
put him without the pale of humanity, and it often seemed to me that, for this reason, he no longer believed that he had any duty towards the human race. The way in which he spoke of his love affairs only increased my alarm, for I foresaw the cause of fresh and more hideous tragedies in this event to which he alluded so boastfully. On the other hand, I soon discovered the curious moral traffic established between the monster and Christine Day. Hiding in the lumber room next to the young prima donna's dressing room, I listened to the wonderful musical displays that evidently flung Christine into marvellous ecstasy, but, all the same, I would never have thought that Eric's voice, which was loud as thunder or soft as angels' voices at will, could have made her forget his ugliness. I understood all when I learned that Christine had not yet seen him. I had occasion to go to the dressing room, and, remembering the lessons he had once given me, I had no difficulty in discovering the trick that made the wall with the mirror swing round, and I ascertained the means of hollow bricks and so on, by which he made his voice carry to Christine as though she had heard it close beside her. In this way also I discovered the road that led to the well and the dungeon, the communist's dungeon, and also the trap door that enabled Eric to go straight to the cellars below the stage. A few days later, what was not to my amazement, I learnt by my own eyes and ears that Eric and Christine Day saw each other and to catch the monster stooping over the little well in the communist's road and sprinkling the forehead of Christine Day who had fainted. A white horse, the horse out of the profeta, which had disappeared from the stables under the opera, was standing quietly beside them. I showed myself. It was terrible. I saw sparks fly from those yellow eyes, and before I had time to say a word, I received a blow on the head that stunned me. When I came to myself, Eric, Christine, and the white horse had disappeared. I felt sure that the poor girl was a prisoner in the house on the lake. Without hesitation, I resolved to return to the bank, notwithstanding the attendant danger. For twenty-four hours, I lay in wait for the monster to appear, for I felt that he must go out, driven by the need of obtaining provisions. And, in this connection, I may say that, when he went out in the streets or ventured to show himself in public, he wore a pasteboard nose with a moustache attached to it, instead of his own horrible hole of a nose. This did not quite take away his corpse-like air, but it made him almost, I say almost, endurable to look at. I therefore watched on the bank of the lake, and, weary of long waiting, was beginning to think that he had gone through the other door, the door in the third cellar, when I heard a slight splashing in the dark. I saw the two yellow eyes shining like candles, and soon the boat touched the shore. Eric jumped out and walked up to me. You've been here for twenty-four hours, he said, and you're annoying me. I tell you, all this will end very badly, and you will have brought it upon yourself, for I have been extraordinarily patient with you. You think you are following me, you great booby, whereas it's I who am following you, 
and I know all that you know about me. Here, I spared you yesterday, in my communist's road. But I warn you, seriously, don't let me catch you there again. Upon my word, you don't seem able to take a hint. He was so furious that I did not think, for the moment, of interrupting him. After puffing and blowing like a walrus, he put his horrible thought into words. Yes, you must learn, once and for all, you must learn. I say, to take a hint, I tell you that, with your recklessness, for you have already been twice arrested by the shade in the fell hat, you did not know what you were doing in the cellars and took you to the managers, who looked upon you as an eccentric Persian interested in stage mechanism and life behind the scenes. I know all about it. I was there, in the office. You know I am everywhere. Well, I tell you that, with your recklessness, they will end by wondering what you are after here, and they will end by knowing that you are after Eric and then they will be after Eric themselves, and they will discover the house on the lake. If they do, it will be a bad lookout for you, old chap, a bad lookout. I won't answer for anything. Again, he puffed and blew like a walrus. I won't answer for anything. If Eric's secrets cease to be Eric's secrets, it will be a bad lookout for a goodly number of the human race. That's all I have to tell you, and unless you are a great booby, it ought to be enough for you, except that you don't know how to take a hint. He had sat down on the stern of his boat and was kicking his heels against the planks, waiting to hear what I had to answer. I simply said, It's not Eric that I'm after here. Who then? You know as well as I do. It's Christine Day, I answered. He retorted, I have every right to see her in my own house. I am loved for my own sake. That's not true. I said, you have carried her off and are keeping her locked up. Listen, he said, will you promise never to meddle with my affairs again, if I prove to you that I am loved for my own sake? Yes, I promise you, I replied without hesitation, for I felt convinced that for such a monster the proof was impossible. Well then, it's quite simple. Christine Day shall leave this as she pleases, and come back again. Yes, come back again, because she wishes. Come back of herself, because she loves me for myself. Oh, I doubt if she will come back, but it is your duty to let her go. My duty you great booby. It is my wish, my wish to let her go, and she will come back again, for she loves me. All this will end in a marriage, a marriage at the Madeline, you great booby. Do you believe me now, when I tell you that my nuptial mass is written? Wait till you hear the Kyrie. He beat time with his heels on the planks of the boat and sang, Kyrie, Kyrie, Kyrie Ellison, wait till you hear, wait till you hear that mass. Look here, I said, I shall believe you if I see Christine Day come out of that house on the lake and go back to it of her own accord and you won't meddle any more in my affairs. No, 
Very well. You shall see that tonight. Come to the masked ball. Christine and I will go and have a look round. Then you can hide in the lumber room and you shall see Christine, who will have gone to her dressing room, delighted to come back to the communist's road. And now be off, for I must go and do some shopping. To my intense astonishment, things happened as he had announced. Christine Day left the house on the lake and returned to it several times, without, apparently, being forced to do so. It was very difficult for me to clear my mind of Eric. However, I resolved to be extremely prudent and did not make the mistake of returning to the shore of the lake or of going by the communists' road. But the idea of the secret entrance in the third cellar haunted me, and I repeatedly went and waited for hours behind a scene from the Roy de Lahore, which had been left there for some reason or other. At last my patience was rewarded. One day, I saw the monster come towards me, on his knees. I was certain that he could not see me. He passed between the scene behind which I stood and a set piece, went to the wall and pressed on a spring that moved a stone and afforded him an ingress. He passed through it and the stone closed behind him. I waited for at least thirty minutes and then pressed the spring in my own turn. Everything happened as with Eric, but I was careful not to go through the hole myself, for I knew that Eric was inside. On the other hand, the idea that I might be caught by Eric suddenly made me think of the death of Joseph Bouquet. I did not wish to jeopardize the advantages of so great a discovery, which might be useful to many people to a goodly number of the human race, in Eric's words, and I left the cellars of the opera, and carefully replacing the stone, was gone. I continued to be greatly interested in the relations between Eric and Christine Day, not from any morbid curiosity, but because of the terrible thought which obsessed my mind that Eric was capable of anything, if he once discovered that he was not loved for his own sake, as he imagined. I continued to wander, very cautiously, about the opera, and soon learned the truth about the monster's dreary love affair. He filled Christine's mind through the terror with which he inspired her, but the dear child's heart belonged wholly to the Viscomte Raoul de Chagny. While they played about like an innocent engaged couple on the upper floor of the opera to avoid the monster, they little suspected that someone was watching over them. I was prepared to do anything, to kill the monster if necessary and explained to the police afterwards. But Eric did not show himself, and I felt none the more comfortable for that. I must explain my whole plan. I thought that the monster, being driven from his house by jealousy, would thus enable me to enter it without danger through the passage in the third cellar. It was important for everybody's sake, that I should know exactly what was inside. One day, tired of waiting for an opportunity, I moved the stone at once and heard an astounding music. The monster was working on his Don Juan triumphant, with every door in his house wide open. I knew that this was the work of his life. I was careful not to stir, 
and remained prudently in my dark hole. He stopped playing for a moment and began walking about his place like a madman, and he said aloud at the top of his voice, It must be finished first, quite finished. This speech was not calculated to reassure me, and, when the music recommenced, I closed the stone very softly. On the day of the abduction of Christine Day, I did not come to the theatre until rather late in the evening, trembling lest I should hear bad news. I had spent a horrible day, for, after reading in a morning paper the announcement of a forthcoming marriage between Christine and Viscount de Chagny, I wondered whether, after all, I should not do better to denounce the monster. But reason returned to me, and I was persuaded that this action could only precipitate a possible catastrophe. When my cab set me down before the opera, I was really almost astonished to see it still standing. But I am something of a fatalist, like all good orientals, and I entered ready for anything. Christine Day's abduction in the prison act, which naturally surprised everyone, found me prepared. I was quite certain that she'd been juggled away by Eric, that prince of conjurers, and I thought positively that this was the end of Christine, and perhaps of everybody, so much so that I thought of advising all these people who were staying on at the theatre to make good their escape. I felt, however, that they would be sure to look upon me as mad, and I refrained. On the other hand, I resolved to act without further delay, as far as I was concerned. The chances were in my favour that Eric, at that moment, was thinking only of his captive. This was the moment to enter his house through the third cellar, and I resolved to take with me that poor little desperate Viscount, who, at the first suggestion, accepted, with an amount of confidence in myself, that touched me profoundly. I had sent my servant for my pistols. I gave one to the Viscount, and advised him to hold himself ready to fire, for, after all, Eric might be waiting for us behind the wall. We were to go by the Communists' road and through the trap door. Seeing my pistols, the Viscount asked me if we were going to fight a duel. I said, yes, and what a duel. But, of course, I had no time to explain anything to him. The little Viscount is a brave fellow, but he knew hardly anything about his adversary, and it was so much the better. My great fear was that he was already somewhere near us, preparing the Punjab lasso. No one knows better than he how to throw the Punjab lasso, for he is the king of stranglers even as he is the prince of conjurers. When he had finished making the little sultana laugh at the time of the rosy hours of Mesenderon, she herself used to ask him to amuse her by giving her a thrill. It was then that he introduced the sport of the Punjab lasso. He had lived in India and acquired an incredible skill in the art of strangulation. He would make them lock him in a courtyard to which they brought a warrior, usually a man condemned to death, armed with a long pike and broadsword. Eric had only his lasso 
and it was always just when the warrior thought that he was going to fell Eric with a tremendous blow that we heard the lasso whistle through the air. With a turn of the wrist, Eric tightened the noose round the adversary's neck and, in this fashion, dragged him before the little sultana and her women, who sat looking from a window, applauding. The little sultana herself learned to wield the Punjab lasso and killed several of her women and even the friends who visited her. But I prefer to drop this terrible subject of the rosy hours of Mazenderan. I have mentioned it only to explain why, on arriving with the Vicomte de Chagny in the cellars of the opera, I was bound to protect my companion against the ever-threatening danger of death by strangulation. My pistols could serve no purpose, for Eric was not likely to show himself, but Eric could always strangle us. I had no time to explain all this to the Viscount. Besides, there was nothing to be gained by complicating the position. I simply told Monsieur de Chagny to keep his hand at the level of his eye, with the arm bent, as though waiting for the command to fire. With his victim in this attitude, it is impossible, even for the most expert strangler, to throw the lasso with advantage. It catches you not only around the neck, but also around the arm or hand. This enables you easily to unloose the lasso, which then becomes harmless. Ever avoiding the commissary of police, A number of door shutters and firemen, after meeting the rat catcher and passing the man in the felt hat unperceived, the Viscount and I arrived without obstacle in the third cellar, between the set piece and the scene from the Roy de Lahore. I worked the stone, and we jumped into the house which Eric had built himself in the double case of the foundation walls of the opera, and this was the easiest thing in the world for him to do, because Eric was one of the chief contractors under Felipe Garnier, the architect of the opera, and continued to work by himself when the works were officially suspended during the war, the siege of Paris, and the Commune. I knew my Eric too well to feel at all comfortable on jumping into his house. I knew what he had made of a certain palace at Mazenderan. From being the most honest building conceivable, he soon turned it into a house of the very devil, where you could not utter a word but it was overheard or repeated by an echo. With his trapdoors, the monster was responsible for endless tragedies of all kinds. He hit upon astonishing inventions. Of these, the most curious, horrible, and dangerous was the so-called torture chamber. Except in special cases, when the little sultana amused herself by inflicting suffering upon some unoffending citizen. No one was let into it but wretches condemned to death. And, even then, when these had had enough, they always were at liberty to put an end to themselves with a Punjab lasso or bowstring, left for their use at the foot of an iron tree. My alarm, therefore, was great when I saw that the room into which Monsieur le Vicomte de Chagny and I had dropped was an exact copy of the torture chamber of the rosy hours of Mazenderan. At our feet, I found the Punjab lasso which I had been dreading 
all evening. I was convinced that this rope had already done duty for Joseph Bouquet, who, like myself, must have caught Eric one evening working the stone in the third cellar. He probably tried it in his turn, fell into the torture chamber, and only left it hanged. I can well imagine Eric dragging the body, in order to get rid of it, to the scene from the Roy de Lahore, and hanging it there as an example, or to increase the superstitious terror that was to help him in guarding the approach to his lair. Then, upon reflection, Eric went back to fetch the Punjab lasso, which is very curiously made out of catgut, and which might have set an examining magistrate thinking. This explains the disappearance of the rope, and now I discovered the lasso at our feet in the torture chamber. I am no coward, but a cold sweat covered my forehead as I moved the little red disc of my lantern over the walls. Monsieur de Chagny noticed it and asked, What is the matter, sir? I made him a violent sign to be silent. <laughs>